Lord, you are worthy of, Father, our affections, of our words being honoring to you, of our actions and pursuits in life being for your glory. And I pray that that would be our hearts even now as we open up your word, Psalm 8. I pray that, Father, you would um, move in the hearts of your people, including myself, to be people who are, are worshipful and people who are driven to utter praises with our lips and um, speak the wonders of who you are to a lost world. I pray that we would be people who would see everything in our lives as an act of worship to you, even in response to your word here in Psalm 8, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. As you know, we just started a series, a summer series through the Psalms, and uh, which is going to be about a three-month series. And as I said last week, and Pastor Karn said the week before, the Psalms really are the songbook of the people of God, the hymn book of God's people, as well as the ultimate um, book of prayer, the ultimate book of prayer. And we can go to the Psalms, of course, to hear the heart cries of the people of God, even in the midst of their afflictions and their trials and tribulations, and how they process those things through the very character and the majesty of God. Now, we've already seen Psalm 51, that we have, um, uh, Pastor Carnes a couple of Sundays ago, uh, talked to us about that psalm as a personal lament psalm of David, as he's uh, uh, thinking about his, reflecting on his journey um, of repentance uh, after the sin with Bathsheba and everything that happened after that sin and sins that took place connected to that. So that was Psalm 51, a personal lament psalm of David. And then last week we focused on Psalm 1, the gateway into the Psalter, all 150 psalms that talked to us about what true happiness consists of. Psalm 1 was a wisdom or instructional psalm telling us about uh, walking in the path, the narrow path of life. And so today we have the privilege of looking at Psalm 8, which is a, a hymn of praise, focused on extolling the very majesty of God. And never look at the Psalms, even though in our Bibles they are, obviously they stand alone, uh, in our Bibles they appear as individual units. It's ultimately one unit, the Psalter, and they kind of um, uh, piggyback off of each other. And Psalm 8 does that. Where after uh, a handful of psalms, previous to Psalm 8, on laments and suffering and all of that, and the psalmists lamenting before God the things that are going on and their enemies and opposition and all of that, Psalm 7, verse 17 ends like this. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And then... Psalm 8, if that verse focused the attention of the audience on praising God, even in the midst of their lamenting, Psalm 8 then plunges us into the very presence of God, crying out, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So Psalm 8, in other words, picks up the theme of praising God from Psalm 7 and verse 17 to now talking about the majesty of God in our responsive worship. So let's read Psalm 8. It says, for the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries 
to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Notice the heading of the psalm, of Psalm 8. By the way, the, the headings are part of the inspired text of Scripture. And they tell us important information about A, the author at times, B, the circumstances surrounding the particular psalm, or three, they give us instructions for the instruments or the music that was to be played along with that psalm. And so the heading for Psalm 8 reads, For the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. First of all, notice it says, For the choir director, which again tells us that this is a song of praises unto Almighty God. And then he says, on the Giddith, that, that little uh, um, uh, phrase there appears also in Psalm 81 and Psalm 84. And honestly, we are not sure what it means. There have been many different things that have been proposed. The word is the feminine adjective of the word gath, which literally means wine press. If you, were, you recall, gath was the famous Philistine city from which Goliath... Um, the great champion of the Philistines came forth, defeated by David, if you remember, with a slingshot. So, though no one knows for certain what the inscription means, most believe that a Giddith was a guitar-like harp associated with Gath in Philistia. But ultimately, we don't know for sure. Okay? Thirdly, he says, a psalm of David, um, pointing to the author, Israel's most prominent king, author of half of the psalms, 75 psalms, of the 150 are authored by David. And as you know, prior to being king, David was a shepherd, right? He was a shepherd. As a former shepherd of sheep then, David oftentimes, while on the fields at nighttime, would be laying on his back, staring into the pitch dark black sky. And if you can imagine, he would have been astonished and awestruck often by the gorgeous heavenly stars and the moon up above him. And so this is really a reflection from the heart of David. At one of those occasions, he penned this psalm, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time that you did that, by the way? When was the last time, and you say, well, you mean when, when I can look past the smog in L.A.? Yes, Right? But maybe the last time you drove somewhere, you vacationed somewhere where maybe um, it's a, it was a great um, clear skies at nighttime and you were able to see the starry host and just be uh, um, invigorated and, and just uh, uh, be led to worship for what you were looking at. Just a few years ago, during a trip to, the, to Joshua Tree National Park, about 150 miles east of L.A., I was able to do that with a group of, of dads. And we took a bunch of, of, of boys uh, with us. And while the boys were running around whacking each other with sticks, um, the dads were able to kind of sit there and talk for a while and have different conversations and all of that. And it was just amazing for me to see the, so vividly the numerous array of stars in the skies and to just behold the, the beauty of God through his, through his creation 
as you see that starry host up above and just being so captivated by that, I was driven to just prayer and silence and to be singing song after song that the Lord by His Spirit was bringing to my heart because of what we were beholding there. It was, a, it was awesome to do that. Well, David must have had many occasions when this happened, when he was so moved in his affections so as to, to, as to break out in praise and worship to God. His, his affections are awakened here in the psalm. And those affections that having been awakened drove him to, to praise the Lord, to praise the Lord for his, for his greatness. And so he pens this psalm. The psalm has affectionately been called at times the psalm for stargazers. And you can imagine why, right? Obviously because of David. And then any time that those who are obviously looking at things through a Godward perspective, through the God of the Bible, any time that you behold anything in creation, it's an opportunity to behold the beauty of who God is in the light of these beautiful heavenly entities. It's said that in 1969, when the spacecraft Apollo 11 journey to the moon, that various leaders were asked to write a, just a short little message to be included on a small disc to be left on the moon. And one leader insightfully wrote Psalm 8, O Lord, how majestic, our, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. That individual understood that if these guys were going to be in the, at the moon, what better scripture to leave there than Psalm 8 in the light of what they were beholding. And so you can't miss the point of Psalm 8. It calls on us to behold the majesty of God that we might worship Him. And so the question is, how does the psalm move our affections to doing that? To praising God in the light of who He is? He does this in a twofold way. And if you're taking notes, this is your outline. The worshiper, first of all, is to praise God for His greatness as seen in His creation. We must praise God for His greatness as seen in everything that we can see in God's creation. And secondly, the worshiper is to praise God for God's grace as shown in His tender care for humanity. We must praise God for His grace as shown in God's care for humanity. First of all, we must praise God for His greatness as seen in creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. When you think about the, the, the heavens, think of the heavens and everything that you can see in their glory as great preachers who are heralding the, the greatness of God. And everything that we see, beloved, in the heavens, and the starry host, and the moon, and the stars, and everything that God has made that we can see in the observable universe calls out and cries out greatness to God. And should evoke in us a desire to praise and worship our Creator. And so the psalm begins this way and ends with David's personal notice. Oh Lord, our Lord. He personalizes this for himself and for others in a collective effort. This is his personal and direct exclamation of praise to God. It's directed at God. You know, in the ancient times, people would behold the starry host or the heavenly entities. And what they would do is that they would, they would worship those heavenly entities. Not David. He's saying, watching your, your, uh, the heavens, Lord, calls on me and evokes in my heart a desire to praise you. Praise is directed unto God, the Creator. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Notice that he, he praises the name of God. Why? Why? 
Because a name tells something about us. Our name represents who we are. And in a perfect way, God's name is very significant. So notice, he says, O Lord, our Lord. The first Lord there is in all caps. In all caps. It is the, the name Yahweh. The personal, proper name of God. Which emphasizes, amongst many other things, His nature, listen, as the self-existent, self-sufficient, and eternal God. Who has always been, He has no beginning and no end. No beginning and no end. He's the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God. Then David says, our Lord, in small caps, that, that second Lord there. Which translates to the name Adonai. Adonai, which emphasizes God as the sovereign creator and ruler of his universe. He's sovereign creator and ruler of his universe. So notice already, just in the name of God, these two names, David has said some things about God. That he is eternal, that he is the self-existent, self-sufficient one. He depends on no one. He has no beginning and no end. And with the Lord, with the small caps, that he is the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. Well, David has a high view of God, doesn't he? High view of God. We throw around names left and right in our society and they mean nothing, including the name of God. And people will even cur- use the name of God uh, and curse his name these days. But I'm telling you right now, that was not David, and that should never be the case for Christians. God's name and all of the names of God are significant, beloved. They are significant. And as we look at this psalm, Psalm 8, there's one overarching theme. It is the majesty of God and the royalty of God as king. He is royalty. David emphasizes God's royalty as seen in his exuberant exclamation in verse 1 and verse 9, where he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That word majestic is the Hebrew word adir. It is a word which means mighty. It is a word, a, a royal attribute that speaks of God's awesome power as seen in his amazing works. It speaks to the fact that God is king. That God is full of power, unrivaled in power as seen in His creation. That He's glorious, that He's beautiful, that He's splendorous, that He is majestic. He is the undisputed, unrivaled King of the universe. All of that wrapped up in majestic. All of that wrapped up in that and many other things. Now what is it that causes David to break out into praise specifically? Well, it's God's vast creation. God's vast creation, he's appreciating the the vastness of the universe. Look at verse 1, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Here's the reason why, Lord, you are majestic in all of the earth, because you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. As David ponders and and marvels at the vastness of God's creation, he says, your splendor is, is above the heavens. That is, it is bigger and more glorious and higher than the heavens. I mean, he covers it all. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. He covers it all. Were David to travel to the remotest corner of the earth, in all of the earth, or to the farthest possible place in the universe, if that was possible, God's splendor would not be exhausted. God's majesty is far greater, far greater. C.H. Spurgeon writes, quote, 
Could we transport ourselves above the moon? Could we reach the highest star above our heads? We should instantly discover new skies, new stars, new suns, new systems, and perhaps more significantly adorned. But even there, the vast dominions of our Creator would not terminate. We should then find to our astonishment that, he had all, that we had only arrived at the borders of the works of God, end quote. See, God's splendor is inexhaustible. And have you ever asked yourself this question? Why such a huge universe? I mean, all we needed was just earth, Lord. Right? Just a few of us. There's enough on earth, food and water and all of that for, to sustain ourselves. Why a vast universe? May I submit to you? Because God wants to be glorified and praised because of the vastness of the universe. Not only did He create a world and an earth where there's enough for all of us to be able to, to sustain life, but a vast universe that we might praise Him and worship Him. Why else make such a vast universe otherwise? Just consider for a few minutes some of the facts concerning this vastness of this universe. And these are not or- original to me. They are from the NASA Internet page and Answers in Genesis and a couple of other reputable sites. Just consider some of these stats. The moon, which we see shining brightly and beautifully at night, is about the same size as the United States. Think about that. The sun, and I butchered this first hour, <laughs> the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. If the sun was hollow, it would hold approximately 1 million worlds or earths. Think about that. Yet the sun is just one of millions of stars. One of millions. On that note, let's talk about the stars. There are more stars in the universe, to put it in perspective, listen, than grains of sand on all of the earth's beaches combined. Let that sit for a minute. Wow. On top of that, our galaxy is made up of myriads of more stars, over 100 billion. Psalm 147 verse 4, though, says that God calls them all by name. He calls them all by name. The Alpha Centauri, the star system made up of three stars, two as big as the sun, is the closest star system to the earth. Listen to this. It is 25 trillion miles away from the earth. Trillion. Can't even comprehend that, um, that uh, number. Our Milky Way galaxy is so big that even at light speed, or the speed of light, which is amazingly fast, it would take 100,000 years to travel across the Milky Way. Think about that. Yet we are just one galaxy. There are multiple galaxies of different shapes and sizes showing the beauty and the creativity of, all, of our Almighty God. It's estimated that there are as many galaxies as stars in the Milky Way alone, some 100 billion galaxies. Again, to put it in perspective relative to the rest of the observable universe, our galaxy alone is less than one grain of sand on the beach. And the earth, of course, is much, much smaller. I can go on and on, beloved, with stat after stat. You look them up. It will take my whole sermon and more to keep going through this, right? Highlighting the vastness of the, of the universe. In all of this, consider the power of God as far as the energy contained in these amazing heavenly bodies. Think about this. Just the sun alone gives off more energy every second 
than one billion major cities would produce in one year. You want me to read that again? The sun alone gives off more energy every second than one billion major cities would produce in one year. And yet our, our galaxy alone is 20 billion times brighter than the sun. Wow. Amazing. And God created all of this with all of that energy and power by the word of his power. That's it. He didn't have to work, right? He, to, he didn't sweat. It's like, oh man, I really, I, I didn't plan well for this. You know, I should have done a better job. No! By the way, he spoke it into existence. We see it in Genesis 1 and 2. When you reflect and ponder such things, let me ask you this. Are you, are you driven to praise and worship God? Are you? A typical person thinks about these things and many other things, and there are many responses. They're indifferent. It doesn't really make a difference. You know, They don't want to think about the implications of, of these things and there being a, a creator to whom they have to be accountable to. Or there are people who just simply throw up other, other ideas. Yeah, there's someone out there. There's something greater that created all of this. It's the Big Bang Theory. It's this little God. It's that little God. It's an, we're, we're just basically creatures of chance. Not David. Not the Christian. For us, it's an opportunity to worship God, the God of Scripture. The one true God. When we behold these amazing things. David acknowledged here as well in verse 2, if you notice, that even the most simple of humans can see the greatness of God. There have always been those who oppose him, those who are skeptical of him, who simply won't praise. So what does God do? Notice in verse 2, he uses the weak, the simple, here infants and nursing babes in verse 2, who display simple faith in God, who acknowledge who he is, to shame those who according to the world standards are the wise. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and their revengeful seize. When he says there, you have established strength, he's talking about the fact that God has ordained praise for himself even through the very weak things of the world. To shame the wise. Though God's splendor is above the heavens and transcendent. He has so purposed to and ordained praise from the smallest of his creatures to shame those who are the skeptics in the world. Think about that. In the very Gospels, we have a very visible example of this. On one occasion in Matthew chapter 21, this is a few days before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And Jesus had been healing a number of people with great miracles and speaking wonderful things to people. And he cleans the temple and there's a triumphal entry um, in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, and it says that the religious leaders, in light of the triumphal entry, in light of the things that Jesus was doing to heal people and to help people, that they were indignant, that they were angry. And they basically point to, to the children and they tell Jesus, Jesus, do you see what they are saying to you, these children? Because the children were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, in response, didn't stop the children. He didn't. But in Matthew twenty one sixteen, he quoted Psalm 8, 
Verse 2 saying this, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He was applying Psalm 8, verse 2, to his present context, to point to himself as the one who deserved their praise because Psalm 8, the praise is being directed to Yahweh, our Lord, who is to be praised. But then in Matthew twenty-one sixteen, Jesus quoting Psalm 8, 2, he's saying, you know what? It is fitting and appropriate that in light of the fact that I'm God, they should praise me. The children in the temple... The seemingly weakest and most simple-minded appropriately worshipped Christ, but the religious leaders opposed Him, acting as His enemies. And beloved, such is God's design to confound the so-called mighty, the wise, through the weak. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, speaking to Christians, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And later on he says, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God chooses to shame the so-called intellectuals of our day who do not acknowledge the fact that he is and that he's creator of this vast universe by pointing to those who express and show childlike faith. That's what he desires. Childlike faith that is driven to praise him for who he is and what he's done in his awesome creation. And so what we have here is David pondering the vast universe and his affections are moved to praise and to worship God. And so should ours, beloved. So should ours. And then as he does so, He becomes self-reflective. That's what happens when you behold the majesty of God and you're meditating upon His Word and looking at His vast creation. You begin to have these amazing thoughts as the Spirit of God is working in your heart to ask deep, profound questions concerning human existence. And so because of the, the universe is so amazing... And because David is is acknowledging that God is even greater than the universe, then his question is, why are you even mindful of me? Why? And this leads David to further praise. So that not only does he praise God for his greatness as seen in his vast creation, but secondly, he praises God for his grace shown to humanity. In verses 3 through 8. Look at verse 3. When I consider... The heavens, Lord, as I meditate and contemplate upon your vast creation, the work of your fingers, that's that's an anthropomorphism, that word, their fingers. It's not that God has fingers, but it's a way to communicate to, to humans so that we understand, highlighting the fact that creation and its vastness is finger work, he says. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, You're the great designer, and you did it all by the word of your power. It's so insignificant, Lord. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. And listen to this in verse 4. What is man? What is man in the light of all of this? And notice that he doesn't say, who is man? He says, what is man? Who is man would have been more normal. But he uses this word what as a device of self-deprecation, of devaluing himself. What is man? 
that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. As great as you are, as vast as your creation is, Lord, I'm awestruck by the fact that what is man? What am I? Why are you even mindful of me and mindful of us? The terms man and son of man, they're emphasized humanity's weakness and frailty and mortality. In fact, Jesus used the title Son of Man for himself in the Gospels to speak of his, of his humanity and of his humble condescension and adding humanity to his deity of becoming weak as a man to experience the same weaknesses and frailties that we experience, though he never sinned. David is truly humbled. And beloved, so should we. So should we. Who am I, Lord, he says. Who are we? In the light of your glory and your glorious creation, who are we? Reminds me of Psalm 144, verse 3. O Lord, or O Yahweh, what is man that you, take, that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Job 7, verse 17, in the midst of his afflictions, Job asks this question, What is man that you magnify him? And that you are concerned about him? The idea there is that, that you actually have man in your heart. Oh, we learn a great lesson, don't we, from this psalm already, that true humility, true deep heartfelt humility, beloved, is cultivated in us, not when we compare ourselves to other people and how we measure up to other people, but to Almighty God, to His glory and His majesty. And we're not very good at that, are we? There's so much competition in Christian circles. Some person wanting to one-up somebody else and competing for who is more spiritual, who is more mature, and all of that. We tend to compare ourselves according to other people. That is not what is going to breed humility in your heart. If anything, that's going to lead to pride in one form or another. Pride in the sense of thinking that you're better than somebody else or pride in the sense of thinking that you're nothing and you can't accomplish anything for the Lord. And that also is pride because you're taking your eyes off of God and putting them on yourself. No. True humility comes by having a high view of God. Low view of God leads to a high view of ourselves. High view of God leads to humility and to encouragement and courage to do what God has called us to do because our sights are set on Him and we do and serve Him by the grace of God. Read the book, When People Are Big and God is Small. Great book for you to read. It talks about this. We come to have a proper view of ourselves when we behold God in a deeper and greater way. When we come to know God in a greater way. That's why we need to read books, beloved. One of my top ten books of all time is the book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. You need to read that book. It's deep, but it's devotional, and it's not a waste of your time. I promise you. I promise you. The book Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Great book on the attributes of God. And our call to worship Him in the light of who He is. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Great book which expands upon the holiness of God. His set-apartness. That He is incomparable and nobody can measure up to God. That is the holiness of God. Read those books. It leads to a low view of yourself. But also courage, if you have the right kind of view of the Lord, to do what God has called you to do and do it by the grace of God. Because He sustains you. He strengthens you. 
R.C. Sproul has written this, quote, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God, end quote. But I also want to remind you, and I want you to notice here, that though in comparison to God we are insignificant and should be humbled by this truth so that we know our place before God, so as not to exalt ourselves above God, this does not mean, as many have said in our day and age or in the past, some of the so-called great philosophers, that human beings are accidental, that human beings are worthless, that all life is nothingness and meaningless. That's not what we learn here from the psalmist and from David writes. David tells us here that God has shown us His grace and His favor as human beings in the fact that He has called us to a privileged position as the crown of His creation. And I want you to see this. Notice in verse 4 that though God is great and His universe is awesome, verse 4 tells us that God is not indifferent to us. He says, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Please observe this. In poetic fashion, it says that God takes thought of us. Not just that we are in His mind, but that He actually has... This has overtones, this taking thought of us, overtones of compassion toward us, of having tender pity towards us. It's the kind of compassion and mindfulness that Jesus had when He looked upon the crowds in His day and age with compassion because they were like sheep having no shepherd so that He was driven to action. Do you remember that? That kind of mindfulness of people. And God cares for us. What is the Son of Man that you care for Him? This evokes awe in us, doesn't it? The fact that He's such a majestic God with infinite power, unrivaled in His majesty, would be mindful and interested and cares and is concerned for us. It's like when somebody that you look up to or somebody that you deeply respect in your life, maybe you haven't seen them for a while, And you see them again and you think that they're not even going to remember you or they're just going to go talk to the more popular person. And they say, hey, how's everything going? Such and such. And they call you by name. And then they say, hey, how is that? How is everything going in that particular prayer request that you shared? I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you. I've been concerned for you. And I wanted to check in with you. See, on the human level, we we think about that, listen, in a perfect way. That is God, not just collectively with His creatures, but every single one of us. God is mindful of us. Psalm 139 says that He has fashioned us in the womb, right? We We are beautifully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well, says the psalmist. God knows us. He is ever before us. Beloved, watching every breath, every heartbeat, every action, every motivation, every attitude. God knows you comprehensively and perfectly, even better than your spouse. That's possible, right? He knows us perfectly and He is mindful of us. He cares for us. And notice, not only is God gracious in that He cares for us in a very unique way, but He's also given men glory and honor. Look at verse 5. Though we are relatively insignificant in comparison to the universe, He says in verse 5, Yet you have made Him a little lower than God. That word in the New American Standard is translated God. It is the Hebrew word Elohim, 
which in the, in the King James Version and New King James Version is translated as angels or heavenly beings in the ESV. But I think that the New American Standard Version got it right here. So, because Psalm 8 has so many allusions to the Genesis creation account in Genesis 1 through 2, when God created man in his image, but less than divine. We are not little gods, even though sometimes we may act like that, right? We are not little gods. So what he's saying is here, human beings are not God, yet have value and significance under God. We are not divine. Now, in light of this, it isn't like David is writing this and he's thinking, I am all that in a bag of chips, you know? I'm, I'm a pretty great guy. I'm pretty special. I'm pretty significant. That is not David's heart. And even saying what he says in verse 5, David is astonished by this. So that even uh, he begins to rehearse some of the creatures under man's watch. Not because we don't know these things, but because he's just amazed and, and astounded by the privileged role that God has given man in creation. Look at verse 6. You have made him a little while low, lower than God. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put things under his feet. You, he, you have made him to rule and, to, and put things under his feet. Has the idea of the fact that we have this privileged role of being God's um, uh, creation keepers and caretakers. It's in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about this. God has given humanity the beautiful task of, of ruling and caring for his earth, of subduing all. By the way, our pets are not called to subdue the earth and subdue us, right? Some people really need a reminder of that. Humans have been called to subdue the earth. Humans have been called to rule the earth. What a wonderful privileged role we have, isn't it? D.A. Carson writes this, quote, The universe was not designed to be vast and meaningless, but to be a vast home for God's people. This creature, this small being, this God-blessed human is designed to serve as God's co-regent over the entire created order of this planet, end quote. Notice verse 7, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Oh, David is reflecting upon anything that he can think of and see perhaps when he was penning this and writing this. And notice where he begins. He begins in his own realm because what was he at one point? A shepherd. So he begins in the fields, all sheep and oxen. These are all yours, Lord. I'm just, a, I'm just an under-shepherd under you. I'm a caretaker of your creation. And the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, whether on, on the, on the, on the, on the uh, physical earth or in heaven above everything or in the water, everything is under our watch. Wow. Remember, this is David worshiping and praising God in the light of this. Not having a high view of himself. All of this accentuates God's goodness and His graciousness toward mankind. And the fact, beloved, that we are significant because God has made us so. Please understand that. You know, we moved over the last couple of weeks to a new house. And uh, it was so good to see all of my kids just serving and all of that, especially my six-year-old little Chloe. Um, she kept coming up to me and asking me, Hey, Daddy, can I help? Daddy, can I do this? Can I, can I seal a box? Can I prepare this? Can I run over and, and pack this other thing? And I would give her little tasks and everything as she was doing that. Because what is true of a little child? 
They want tasks because they want to be useful, right? They want to be needed. They want, to, they want the opportunity to contribute. And beloved, that's what we have even as human beings on this earth. God has given you the privileged opportunity to be a contributor on this earth for His glory. He has put you here for a purpose. For His glory and for the good of mankind. Are you fulfilling that purpose? It's an act of His grace and an act of His goodness. He has graciously chosen to give humanity the the privilege, responsibility to rule, to have dominion over His creation. We are co-regents and co-rulers with God, if you will. Not because we deserve this privilege, but because He is a loving and gracious God. But please don't forget... And we must always remember this, and this is the problem. Part of the problem with human beings who reject Jesus as Lord is that we forget about the fact that this privilege as the crown of God's creation that human beings have is a derived glory. A derived, delegated authority, if you will. It is not of us. God has given it to us. David emphasizes that God and God God alone is the sovereign king who has ordained these things. Just notice in verses 5 and 6 with me, all the you's and yours's, okay? Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All of these you's and yours's, I know those are not words, but you get my point, emphasize to us poetically that our ultimate value and significance and privileged role and position as human beings doesn't come from us, but it comes from God for God, for Him, not for ourselves. God is to be the center and the circumference of everything that we do. Everything. We are here on mission for the Lord, not for ourselves. This is important for us to remember. Our high privilege, our great privilege is the crown of God's creation. Because, beloved, with great privilege as God's creatures, of being human beings who are the crown of God's creation, comes great responsibility. Great responsibility. And that means that our purpose for living is truly to enjoy God and worship and praise Him on this earth in everything that we do. Internally, through our words, through our priorities, our purposes, how we devote and invest our time on this earth is all for the worship of His majesty. All for Him. With great privilege comes great responsibility as human beings to live out our purpose of glorifying God. And listen to me, most people on this earth aren't worshiping and praising God and seeking to be like God. They are spiraling downward in greater sin and corruption. And one of the effects of sin is that people become less human because they are not carrying out the purposes for human, the purpose of God for human beings, which is to glorify and exalt His name on this earth. So we become less than human. Shameless without boundaries in our lives. That's what sin does. It leads to deeper and greater spiritual decadence and darkness in our life. Because we are not carrying out our purpose to worship Him. Writing on humanity's responsibility to give praise to the Lord, one commentator has written this, quote, Human power is always bounded and surrounded by divine praise. 
Doxology, which means worship, adoration. Doxology gives dominion its context and legitimacy. God intended for humans to have such power and authority, but without praise to God, humans only pervert, that is, twist and abuse that power, end quote. Reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Humans have been created to worship God, to acknowledge that He is creator, through everything that he has, he has created and we can see. But what do people do? They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That word suppress in Romans 1, 19 and following has the idea of, you remember those toys, those jack-in-the-box toys? Who remembers that? That was like ancient times, huh? I remember those as a kid. There was this clown, right? And you had to push a button in order for that clown to jump out at you and scare you. There are people... Or I remember kids even sitting down and I would get angry at this other toddler kid who would sit on top of the -the jack-in-the-box and pretend that the -the jack-in-the-box wasn't there. And I wanted that thing to come out, right? He was suppressing the -the jack-in-the-box. He was there. You know, that's the idea in our our, um, world, beloved. People know that God is creator. People can behold the greatness of God and all that he has made. And people suppress the truth of God and His creation in unrighteousness. They pretend that He is not there. Because if they recognize and acknowledge that God is their Creator, then they would be accountable to God. And we don't want to be accountable to a God who has absolute, complete control over our lives. We do not want to be accountable. We want to be autonomous. That is the nature of our sinful human hearts. So we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Romans 1, 19, verses 19 through 21 says this, that which is known about God is evident within them, within every individual, that is their conscience. For God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks but they became futile, that is vain, worthless in their speculations, that is their their philosophical ideologies, their ideas, their so-called human wisdom. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Mark it. That is what happens to every single human being who doesn't acknowledge by their choice the fact that God is creator and that God, you are accountable to God. You spiral downward into greater spiritual decadence. Either trusting in your morality and your good works and your humanitarian efforts all the more and not Christ. Or you wear your heart on your sleeve and you don't care shamelessly about how you sin against the living God. That's what happens with somebody who doesn't acknowledge God as creator. Men's conscience and creation bears witness about God's glory and his greatness. But men will not praise him for who he is. But this wasn't David, was it? This wasn't David. When he pondered the vastness of God's universe, he was awestruck by the majesty of God and his affections were moved within him so that he praised God and worshipped God, beloved. And that should be us as well. And so notice how verse the psalm ends with this refrain again in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. By verse 9 now, the audience really understands the reason for David's exuberant praise, right? 
because of the greatness of His creation and how vast it is and how great God is and because of His grace shown toward human beings who deserve nothing. He's given us so much. And so we're called upon by Psalm 8 to celebrate God's greatness and be humbled by God's grace. When was the last time that you pondered and contemplated God's greatness in creation so that your affections were moved to praise God? When was the last time that you took some time to do that? We ought to be doing it every day. Right? The Christian life is about a life of worship. Internally, fleshing itself out to the way that we speak and the way that we live and our priorities and the things that we pursue in life and our slain of sin. Life is all about worship, but when was the last time that you actually sat down and contemplated from God's Word and your affections were moved to praise God for who He is? When was the last time that you did that as a, as a Christian? See, we are so distracted, aren't we? So pulled in different directions. So bogged down by important things, but they are secondary things, and they become idols in our lives when we put them above God. All of us have those. We have idols in our hearts, things that we have elevated above God. So we don't praise Him and worship Him, especially from within or our circumstances, we get bogged down in our circumstances. Trials and tribulations hit. Physical issues hit us. Relational problems happen. Things that, are, that were unexpected take place. And we stop praising God, beloved. I can promise you as we go through the various psalms, that the psalmist, the journey that they take us through is this. God is great and worthy to be praised, even if you're in trial and tribulation and you're going through health and issues relationally with somebody else. No matter what your circumstances are about, no matter what challenges you're facing, God is worthy to be sought. God is worthy to be praised. What is it that with the Lord Jesus, those nights that he spent in, in time in prayer before his heavenly father, 12, 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, what drove him? I can tell you this, his father was worthy to be sought. His father was worthy to be praised. No matter what Jesus was experiencing in his weakness and frailty as a human being, though perfect. God is worthy to be sought and to be praised. When was the last time you were humbled by God's grace? Humbled by His many gifts, His common grace to you. Hot water, food on the table, warm clothing, shelter in America, a wonderful property, a wonderful comfortable car with air conditioning in 100 degrees weather in L.A., when was the last time you were humbled by the grace of God, even as you be, behold His greatness and how He's always there caring for you and His concern for you when you're going through trials and sufferings and afflictions? When was the last time that you were driven, being mindful of His tender grace and favor shown toward you so that you praised Him for being there for you? And when was the last time that you were humbled by His grace in showing you a saving faith in Jesus Christ? When was the last time you said, thank you, Lord, for saving me, a wretch like me? Are you humbled by the grace of God? His awesome majesty that he, he actually cares for you. 
minuscule person in comparison to the vastness of the universe, and yet he knows the number of the hairs on your head. Right? Some of us, it's less hairs than others. No offense. He knows us very well. There's one last thing that I don't want us to miss here, and it's that ultimately, Christ gives meaning and greater clarity to the psalm, right? I mentioned this to you last week. We, Jesus is the, is the great meta-narrative, the greater framework through the lenses through which we should see every single psalm. Because, while well, man, according to Psalm 8, as David is reflecting even of Genesis 1 and 2, and man being created in the image of God and being given the privilege of ruling over and caring for God's creation, we know as human beings that because of the fall, man has failed to fulfill his God-given call and cannot apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot. We cannot read the Psalms without our gospel lenses. And the central figure, centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus Christ and His saving, atoning work on our behalf. So that if the first Adam failed miserably, plunging mankind into a state of brokenness so that we don't fulfill our purpose of living for the glory of God in this way, according to Psalm 8, we know one, the second Adam, according to Romans 5, Jesus Christ, our exalted King, who did. He did. Perfect life, atoning death, glorious resurrection, soon to come exaltation. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that is. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6 says this. And there's a good reason why we're going here. Hebrews, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is better. And in Hebrews 2, verse 5, it says, For God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Sound familiar? Quotation of Psalm 8, verse 4. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But listen to verse 9. Here is the ultimate God-man, the second Adam to whom everything will be subjected to. Verse 9. But we do see him, namely Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Beloved, listen to me. Here are the gospel lenses, right? Because of Jesus' atoning death on behalf of sinners and his glorious resurrection, Jesus is the one who is going to usher in his kingdom. It will be comprehensive. It will be total rule realized by the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly fulfilling Psalm 8. You say, well, where do I fall in, Pastor? Where do I fall in? Well, those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ and been forgiven of their sins and been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus will rule with Christ on earth in a new heavens and a new earth. Isn't that amazing? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
One day Jesus will rule over all things, and those who have trusted in Jesus have been forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God, will rule with Him so that in Christ we fulfill our intended purpose to live for the glory of God. May we worship Him. May we praise His majesty in the light of these truths. Amen? Father God, oh Lord, we are so humbled by Your awesome majesty and the fact that because of Your Son Jesus, our resurrected, ascended, exalted Lord and Savior, one day we have the hope beyond this earth of ruling with Him, where there will be, we will be unhindered by sin, unhindered by human frailties, unhindered by sickness, unhindered, Lord, by our struggles with sin, so that we might worship and praise You as You are. Lord, help us to have that kind of eschatological end-time hope fixed upon Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And help us in this world, Father, do in us a great work that we would be people who praise you, people who are so captivated by your majesty according to your word and everything that we can see so that we would praise you, that we would tell people of the wonders of who you are and what you've done in your son Jesus. Oh, Lord, open our lips that we would, Lord, speak the wonderful works of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.